So now that we're good, uh, I want to continue this conversation about um, how we're sort of shifting towards a more open world and talk to you about how I see um, my generation really, con or the current generation of students, my generation, really continuing this movement um, and even accelerating it. Uh, my generation is really, I think, the first generation of digital natives. We've grown up with computers, and even more importantly, we've grown up with the internet. And I think that's really important because I think it's fundamentally affected our values, especially our value um, for openness. And I think this is very apparent in our culture and things like YouTube and Facebook and all the different examples we've seen so far. But I think uh, it's not as apparent in the academy, especially with students in the academy. And I think there's a real risk that unless we do something, students won't necessarily import those values that they have uh, for openness and culture to the academy, and I want to talk to you about that a little bit more later. Uh, but before I go any further, I want to make a caveat that when I say my generation's you know, open, I'm not trying to sort of talk up my generation. I think all, uh, most if not everybody at this conference really believes these sort of same values and believes in openness. But I think my generation's sort of unique in the sense that this belief is so widespread it's almost a defining characteristic. Um, so when I say um, that we believe in openness, I sort of want to unpack this term openness and sort of come talk to you about the different values that sort of comprise this broader notion. So when I say we expect information to be open, what I really mean is that we expect information to be as free as possible, immediately accessible, remixable, and equally accessible. Um, to all, and I think it's actually really interesting that I came up with these um, when I was writing this presentation, just sort of thinking about what I believe about openness. I just realized um, after John's presentation that if you actually go back and look at the uh, Budapest Open Access Initiative at the definition of open, it's exactly that, which I think is incredible. Um, so anyway, uh, I want to go through and sort of talk about each of these individually. Um, so we expect information to be free, at least as free as possible. And sort of the uncharitable will say we're a generation of pirates, that we don't have sort of respect for intellectual property. But I think this really um, misses the point. There we go. Um, and I, we expect information to be open, not sort of out of some malice or selfishness, but because we've grown up um, sort of in an environment, at least in the digital world, of one that's of abundance rather than scarcity. As John was uh, saying, we're not sort of in a vinyl world anymore where, you know, if I've got a great music and I want you to listen to it, then I have to just give it away from, you know, to you where I can't enjoy it, you know. But if I have, you know, a band that's up and coming, of course, it's Creative Commons licensed, then we can sort of copy that and both of us can enjoy it. Um, and I think one example that's really powerful is that I think the most common command that we do on the computer is uh, control copy, control paste. Actually, no, wait, we're at Apple, so command copy, command paste. Um, but I think this is really powerful at the intuitive level because every day we can replicate digital information infinitely with just two clicks. We can go from one document to as many as we want. And I think this is really powerful intuitively because um, we just see every day that there's no marginal cost of distribution to this stuff. Um, so that that's what I think is really sort of the underlying uh, intuition that's at play and why we believe information should be open. Next, we expect it to be immediately accessible. I think this comes straight out of all of the great search technology that we've grown up with. You know, whether it was Yahoo in the beginning or some of the other ones, to Google Now, we expect you know, all the world's information to be available at our fingertips, so we spend less time searching and more time doing. Um, we also expect information to be remixable. We want to take information and make it our own, and you know, take what somebody else has done and remix it and put it towards our own creative ends. And I think the best way to really show how much we believe in this is to see how it sort of evidenced itself in our culture. There's a really hilarious example of uh, a free culture advocate, Fred Benenson, has taken uh, Moby Dick, which is, of course, in the public domain, and he has translated the entire book using Amazon uh, Mechanical Turk into a Japanese emoticon language called emoji, thus creating emoji dick. So instead of call me Ishmael, we have, well, that. <laughs> uh, I think a more well-known example uh, still in the world of book, excuse me, books is um, this book, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, where Seth uh, Graham Smith has remixed Pride and Prejudice and turned it into a zombie epic. So even in sort of a format that you wouldn't think is uh, 
something that you remix in, there's really good examples of it. I think music's probably the most, oh, yes, of course, it's the number three New York Times bestseller. Uh, I think music is probably the uh, most obvious case. You know, remixes are often more popular than the originals, but it's sort of gone beyond just tinkering with uh, sort of original track to an entire new genre of uh, music called mashup, where, you know, an artist like Girl Talk takes literally 35 different samples from different artists in all sorts of different genres, everything from you know, Vanilla Ice and Wu-Tang Clan to Phil Collins and The Cure, and mashes up into one new track you know, that's original and really interesting. And just, I guess, to show you how popular this stuff is, when I graduated from college, Girl Talk was by far the most popular um, artist on campus. Uh, so it's something we really uh, listen to in a really important way that we express ourselves. And then finally, uh, in video, I could, we could watch funny videos on YouTube that are mashups and remixes all day. But I think this is one particularly good example where uh, a group, Barely Political, has mashed up uh, lots of news footage and sort of uh, auto-tuned it so it's musical. So I'll take a quick look at this. If they'll play the audio. I guess I should probably first apologize to uh, Senator Grassley. But anyway, I think this uh, is just another great example that through all these different medias, video, music, and books, uh, you know, remix is something that's very important, and we have to have information you know, freely available in order to do it. And then lastly, um, we expect it to be equally accessible to all. We don't just expect information to be free for ourselves. We expect it to be free for everybody. We don't just want to take you know, Wikipedia and wall it off so only some people get access to it. And I think that you can see sort of this uh, belief in play through in projects like, for instance, like the One Laptop, One Child project, where if you can just get this laptop into people's hands, into children's hands, and they have you know, this entire wealth of information uh, that's on the internet. And it has to be equally accessible you know, for that to happen. So now that we've sort of talked about these values, how do they match up with the current scholarly publishing system? Um, and specifically, I'm talking about journals, and I think the answer is you know, not well at all. So um, specifically, first of all, are they free? You all obviously know the answer to this question, because you know, John's already addressed it. Uh, but the good news is that also, as John said, 20% of journals are free. You know, they are open, openly available for free immediately, and you can do, uh, you have wide reuse rights. But the real problem is that 80% are not. And those 80% can be incredibly expensive. These are uh, some of the journals that MIT subscribes to, and as you can see, they're insanely expensive. Uh, for just the 96 most expensive journals, MIT spends almost a million dollars a year. So these things are just incredibly expensive, and it's also, Important to note that of those 96 journals, only nine are owned by nonprofit publishers, while 90 are owned by commercial publishers. I think that speaks volumes to the point John was making earlier about the different incentives that are at play between commercial publishers that do this uh, for profit and nonprofit publishers. So this stuff's really expensive, or it can be very expensive. And it's also been getting more expensive uh, at a very, very rapid rate. And John also hit this point earlier. This is a graph of MIT libraries' uh, journal expenditure, uh, <laughs> expenditures from 1986 to 2006, and you can see uh, their journal expenditures increased over 360% over 20 years, while inflation's you know, hovering right around 70. So just to keep up with increasing journal prices, they've had to increase uh, their journal budget over 250% above inflation. And you know, MIT's you know, obviously has a lot of resources at the disposal, but you know, this is catastrophic for universities that don't have the same level of funding. So this stuff isn't free, but begs the question, could it be free? Um, and I don't mean freezing without costs at all. There are definitely costs that go into making journals, and nobody questions that. The question is whether we can shift those costs so that you know, the user doesn't have to bear them, so the information that's in these journals can be made available to everyone. And I think there's sort of two answers to this. And one's, even within the current system, we can make this stuff available. If you 
uh, make use of your institutional repository and deposit any work in you know, that repository, then it can be made available. But of course, you have to remember to reserve your rights and don't just sign them away to the publishers. But then I think over the longer term, the answer is a shift towards open access journals. As uh, John was talking about, I think PLOS is a great example of a group of open access journals that uh, is not only uh, viable uh, financially, but has also been very successful uh, in leading you know, the different fields that they publish in. So I think this is a you know, very viable option, and one hopefully that we can move towards. So is the information in these journals immediately accessible? And well, the obvious answer is that it depends. If the information's in the 20% of journals that are open access, then yes. But if it's not, if it's in the 80% of the scholarly record you know, that's based on subscriptions, then the answer depends solely on your ability, either individually or institutionally, to pay. And I think that's you know, a huge problem. Is it remixable? And the answer, again, it's locked right now for two reasons, right? You obviously can't remix anything you don't have access to, so that's clearly a problem. And then the second is that right now the most common format is the PDF, and that's problematic because also, as John mentioned, it does not support robust searching, linking, text mining, or reformatting of the long term, nor does it provide full accessibility for the blind or reading impaired. And so I think the answer to this is obviously shifting towards a markup language like XML that does allow for these things. Uh, because we have to realize that we're not just writing for one audience anymore. We're not just writing for people. As John mentioned, we're writing for people and robots, and the, we have to because we're publishing so many articles now you know, that we have to rely on robots not just to sort of uh, give us a good overview of what's going on in different fields and sort of uh, scholarly publishing overall, but it's also uh, really useful in making connections between different fields that wouldn't be obvious to any one person. But beyond computers, I think there's a huge opportunity that's lost right now in remix just by individual people. I think uh, in much the same way that Girl Talk remixes different genres of music into something new and interesting, I think there's a great opportunity to you know, um, integrate lots of different fields you know, of science and uh, the liberal arts and come up with new and interesting ideas. And I think uh, some recent research that, done, that was done at Yale sort of uh, illustrates this point perfectly. Uh, researchers there compared the evolution of E. coli to the development of the Linux operating system and came up with some really interesting insights uh, into Linux and computer programming in general. But the only reason they were able to do this is because they had access to the literature in computer science, computational biology, and bio bioinformatics, and molecular biophysics and biochemistry. Um, but if you take away one of those pieces, then you can't do this research any, anymore. And I think this is especially important because institutions obviously tend to focus on certain areas, and their journal literature that they subscribe to you know, falls um, within those sort of lines, the areas in which they uh, specialize. And so we need to make this information open so researchers that do want to you know, cross these different um, fields can do so freely. And then lastly, and I think by far most importantly, um, is this stuff equally accessible? And the answer is flatly no. Your access to journals and the scholarly record depends directly upon your ability to pay either individually or institutionally. And that means that students who rely on journals, not just for the details of, you know, that they do for, you know, uh, they need for uh, class for papers, um, but also sort of they rely on the stuff for sort of the broader picture and giving them the, you know, an overall idea of what's going on in a field. They get locked out of this stuff because their education is now limited not by their imagination or their intellectual curiosity, but by their library journal budgets and what their school can afford. Um, and I think the current economic crisis sort of makes this point beautifully because libraries have been having to cut their journal budgets, which slashed you know, what students have access to. And I think uh, Jay Stair, the dean of libraries at Washington State, uh, makes this point uh, perfectly in this project, this library journal, journal cancellation project that they've been having to go through over the last three years due to budget cuts. He says that we're uh, now losing access to core periodicals in some journals. So it's not just losing access to sort of things at the fringes. Students are now losing access to things they actually rely on for their education. Um, and I think one sort of uh, group of students that sort of misses out 
uh, or isn't talked about enough is students at community colleges. Community colleges enroll at half of the students in American higher education today, but they have to make do with a teeny fraction of the access that most four-year institutions have. Uh, I recently talked to a librarian at a community colleges, and she said, you know, our students are very frustrated that their options for journal inquiry are limited that they can never begin to support the research that any of their faculty want to engage in, and she directly ties it because they're so expensive. Um, and I want to sort of talk a little bit more about this middle point, that they can't support their faculty research. Not only is this bad for faculty, but it's also really bad for students, because when students, uh, when students professors don't get access you know, to the scholarly record, it means they can't stay up to date and bring the most up-to-date knowledge into the classroom. And I think uh, Gary Ward of the University of Vermont makes this point perfectly. Um, when he says, you know, I often find myself teaching graduate medical students what I have access to rather than what they most need to know. And that that's extremely frustrating to me as an educator, and it's clearly not in the best interests of my students. And then this is coming from somebody that's at, you know, a big institution that does have lots of uh, money to subscribe to these journals, and he only gets access, you know, to two-thirds. So you can imagine how much worse the situation is at schools that don't have as much money or community colleges. And lastly, I've only been talking about this in the context of, you know, essentially just the United States, but also, you know, this is this similar situation in sort of the main developed world. But the situation is so much worse in the developing world. They don't have, you know, a million dollars to spend every year on 96 journal subscriptions. Um, and not only does that hurt students and researchers, you know, and hurt, you know, their education, but it actually really does have a human um, impact. It really does cost lives when doctors in third world countries or uh, developing countries can't get access to the most up-to-date medical information or even worse, make decisions uh, about treatment options based solely off of abstracts rather than the full texts um, of articles. So if we have so many problems, uh, there's so much tension between the current system of scholarly publishing and sort of our, our values for openness, why aren't we more restless as students? And I think the answer is that the scholarly publishing system is obscured to us both as consumers of information, um, but also as producers, as authors. So as consumers, we depend on the library to get our access to the stuff, um, which means we go to the library portal. But when we can't sort of get access to a journal, we just sort of think that that's the way it is. We don't see the system behind it. We don't see the publishers. So we just sort of, well, that's the way it is. We don't see you know, the problems, which means we can't act on them. Um, and then as authors, I think this, um, cartoon from uh, Jorge Sham of PhD Comics sort of makes this point perfectly. As authors, the focus is very much on the process of publishing rather than the goal to make this knowledge available. Um, right. And so this comic sort of says, uh, you know, scholars give away their work for free. They volunteer and peer review it for free, but then they don't think twice about paying to get this very same work back. He goes, well, why the hell do we do this? And, you know, it sounds outrageous, but scholars will do anything because they want to be published. So I think this is, you know, even more true for students because, you know, if you're trying to publish your first papers, then you're just solely focused on that publishing process. You're not really questioning, well, why am I doing this? What are the ramifications of making this available to other people? And I think it's even uh, worse uh, a little bit later on you know, with early career professional or early career researchers where they're so uh, fixated on, you know, hiring committees and promotion and tenure that they're very focused on publishing the most prestigious journals and don't really, you know, think about openness. So, how do we get from where we are now where we're sort of starting to build momentum and getting restless to actually being restless and being able to actually create change? And I think the answer is frustratingly simple. You really just have to talk to students. Their beliefs in openness, our beliefs in openness are so strong that once you sort of present the scholarly publishing system and its problems and the implications uh, that you know, these problems have on people, not just students uh, here in the United States, but students in the third world, doctors in the developing world, that they get this stuff immediately. Um, 
And that's what I've been working um, to do this, over this past year with my coalition, the Right to Research Coalition. We started last summer with six organizations representing around 50,000 students. And right now we're up to 24 organizations and we represent over 5 million students. Um, and I think there's a really good example of how quickly students get this stuff. One of our members uh, that joined after we started is the National Association of Graduate Professional Students. They're the largest graduate student organization in the United States. And right after joining our coalition, they made open access their top legislative priority. They dropped what they were doing and started advocating for open access immediately. They went from not doing anything with this to making it their top priority. And not only did they sort of make it a priority, they actually followed through on it. Since doing this, they've lobbied in over 100 congressional offices. And I think this is just incredibly, this is the best example you could give for how quickly students will get engaged once you uh, show them that this is a problem. So I sort of implore you, uh, to take this back to your institutions and engage um, your students. First of all, if you're a student, please talk to your peers. Um, but also, you know, I think most of the people that are attending this day are professors or faculty in some sense. And I please bring this back into the classroom and talk to your students about it. They will get it. Um, and you can point them to us if they want to get active. Um, you know, bring it up when you're talking about research projects or bring it up in advising sessions. But not just, you know, you don't just have to sort of figure out day-to-day -day ways to bring this up. Um, we have Open Access Week that's coming up uh, in October, and it's a great time for y'all to sort of organize an event on campus to raise the profile uh, of the problems of scholarly publishing. So definitely bring it on campus, but sort of in true Apple form, I have to be cliche, and there's one more thing. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't sort of put this up there lightly. I think what I'm about to talk to y'all about is every bit uh, will be every bit as revolutionary to scholarly publishing as the iPhone was to phones. And you, some of you might know where I'm going, and that's we have a bill in Congress right now that's the Federal Research Public Access Act. Essentially what it would do is it would make all the $60 billion that uh, the U.S. government funds every year, it would, make, uh, it would require that the results of that research are made publicly available within six months of publication. So not only would this uh, make public a huge portion of all the scholarly uh, articles that are published every year, I think even, uh, at least as importantly, it would set a very strong precedent toward openness and sort of shift the default setting in the system away from, you know, closed or broken, as John pointed out, to open. You know, when the government makes takes such a big step, then people start to take notice and publishers start, you know, to change their business model. So I can't, um, I guess, I really want to encourage y'all to uh, visit our website, taxpayeraccess.org slash purple. You can find templates there. Uh, and please just write in uh, to both your senators and um, your representatives. It's just been introduced in the, uh, the House of Representatives on April 15th uh, on tax day. Uh, <laughs> there is poetic justice still alive in the world. Um, so if I leave you with anything, please definitely take action on this. Um, you know, your letters when you write into your representatives and senators really do have an impact. You know, and if everybody, all 1,000 of us, you know, wrote in and also, you know, encouraged our friends and colleagues to do so as well, uh, then it would have, you know, an immeasurable impact. So please do that. And then lastly, uh, <laughs> I know I put my email up <laughs> at my own peril, but I really hope that uh, any of y'all that have questions or want to get involved with students or have any questions about, you know, how best can you talk to students, what appeals most to undergraduates versus graduates. Uh, if you want to put students in contact with me, please uh, let me know. I'll be really happy if I get, you know, a million emails and can't answer them all, you know, in two weeks. And then lastly, I also want to say for all the people that are watching this internationally, um, right now we're about to start a big push um, to expand internationally. Right now, all of our organizations, except for one, are based in the United States and Canada. And I think uh, we really want to make this student um, presence in the open access movement match the broader global nature of the open access movement. So um, if you know, you're in uh, other countries or know people there that would be good to connect us with, please let me know. <laughs> Thanks.